Amen. Um, so, my man and I got married. Actually, it'll be 15 years, August 8th. 15 years. Can you believe that? I can't. I mean, it feels like yesterday, but it also feels like a million years ago. Like, it's kind of a both and, right? 15 years ago, we got married, and uh, so we did the ceremony thing. We did all of that, and, um, and then we went on honeymoon together. And so we actually, uh, we, we had planned, we, we couldn't go right away. Um, so we planned, we stayed in this little bed and breakfast. We got married in Augusta, Georgia. It was downtown Augusta, Georgia, this cute little place or whatever. But as me, immediately, even that night, tr- some things, troubles started to happen. You know, like little things, annoying things. Like uh, one of us, we, we still to this day haven't determined who was supposed to be responsible for the car keys. The car, uh, we left a car there with our stuff in it. And so... Uh, it was probably me. I forgot the keys, probably. Regardless, uh, I mean, I thought it was supposed to be her. She thought it was supposed to be me. And she's convinced it was supposed to be me, so it, it was supposed to be me. And, uh, and so, you know, so we spent, like, the first two hours of our honeymoon, you know, waiting for somebody to go get the key so that Amanda could get out of this super tight wedding dress or whatever. And then we, you know, then we made our way to Atlanta the next day, and we, we boarded an airplane, whatever, to go to Puerto Rico is where we were going for our honeymoon. And we get there, and Amanda's bag is lost. And so, you know, we're spending uh, the first part of our honeymoon uh, hunting through um, Puerto Rico, old San Juan, for some clothing that Amanda can wear. And, like, Amanda's, like, super tiny. And here we are in a Latino place trying to find underwear for her was, like, you know, near to impossible. Uh, And so... You know, but here's the thing, like, and all this crazy stuff happened throughout our honeymoon or whatever, and all these pressures or whatever, and, and even after we got back from the honeymoon, you know, the pressures of, like, you know, schedules, the pressures of, of life, and just, you know, things going on or whatever, and it was all these outside pressures were attacking us or whatever, but those things kind of threw us together. You know what I mean? We kind of laugh about it. Remember that time, you know, remember that stuff? But here's the thing, it, yeah, that was great, you know, and it was like those outside pressures were hard, but they kind of drew us together. But it was when we started to face internal opposition or internal struggles. Or let me just put it this way, when our sin, particularly my sin, began to show itself, okay, I won't confess hers. But when my sin, my selfishness started to show itself in different ways, then marriage got tough. And as, as they say, the honeymoon was over. Right? And so, uh, and, and I think that's kind of what you see here in the book of Acts. You know, Jesus is on the scene. He's, he's with the disciples for 40 days. And there's this period of waiting, preparing, and praying. And Jesus is there with them. And then Jesus leaves. And so the question is, if Jesus leaves, now what? What connects us to the power of Jesus to heal and to bring the gospel and the good news to people, right? And the answer was, the Holy Spirit comes. And so the Holy Spirit's poured out on his people, and like these amazing things start to happen. 
and the preaching of God goes out in power. The people are devoted to God's word. They are connected to each other. Even though they're from all tribes, tongues, and nations, they have all things in common. There's all, you know, and they're selling property to help each other out. Nobody's bills are going late. Everybody's going, you know, it's like they're singing kumbaya. They're dancing around with flowers. And um, they're hanging out in, in downtown. They're at the temple every day. They're sharing Jesus. People are coming to know Jesus, whatever. And then they start to find, then they experience some real external opposition. We saw that last week when, you know, Peter and John are literally arrested. And their lives are threatened and they're scared. But they're, they show this amazing boldness. And they're praying. But then immediately after that, we see at the end of chapter 4 that they come together and they're praying for boldness. And then it says, okay, uh, back in verse 32, it says, For the full number who have believed, they were all of one heart and soul. And no one um, that had any things that belonged to So there's back to the same thing. There's this amazing, extraordinary community. Of love and generosity, devotion to God's word. And then you see Barnabas, this guy Barnabas, his nickname maybe. It's his son of encouragement. He decides he has some property and he sells this property. And he brings the proceeds and he lays it at the feet of the disciples. Then we see the honeymoon starts to end. This amazing period, this church starts And even with external opposition, it almost seems to pull them together. You know, it's like the church, when it's persecuted, tends to grow and flourish and do well. But then uh, you see Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira, they kind of get into this thing. They're like, yeah, we like this. You know, everybody's like loving each other, whatever. And so... For whatever reason, they decide they liked what Barnabas did. And so they do the same. Like, we're going to do what Barnabas did. And so they go and they sell a piece of property. And I don't know if it was ahead of time. Maybe it's when they got the cash in hand. They're like, oh. You know, I mean, that's the thing is, like, they tell you, like, if you want to, like, curb your spending, like, use cash. Because there's something about the act of taking cash from your hand and putting it somewhere else. Have you ever, you know, it's like, it's a hard thing, right? It's a really tough, maybe that's when it happened. Like, so they get cat, and they decide to them, with the, among themselves, we're just going to hold some of this back. We're going to say we're, that it costs this much now. We're going to change, so we're going to hold some of it back. And, and so Peter, maybe led by the Holy Spirit, realizes this, or maybe he does the math in his head. We're not really sure, but he calls them out on. And then God strikes them dead. Like, what in the world is going on here? Like, holy cow. This is extreme. Like, boom, they're dead for lying about how much this land cost. And so there's a lot of questions. Why would God do this? What is going on here in this story? Okay? And uh, what we need to see, first of all, is that, so it's a main idea here, okay? Okay? Even the smallest resistance to the cross or the gospel can be detrimental to the church. Let me say it again. Even the smallest resistance to the cross or the gospel can be detrimental 
to the church. All right? And so what's going on here? And I think there's some lessons here. Okay? Why would God strike them dead like this? Is is God do this often? (laughs) Should we be worried about this? Uh, What's happening? Freaking out over here. Okay? Let's back up. I'm going to do it, okay? Don't touch anything. It went. Take it back to the slide after that main point there, if you can, for me. All right? So what's happening here, okay? Even the small, I think overall what we see um, is that um, even the smallest resistance to the gospel is a, is a very dangerous thing to the church. Okay? But here's some things. Why would God do this? Why such a severe, drastic thing? I mean, and, you know, to, uh, I mean, I read this and think, what is going on here? Okay? So a couple of things we need to understand that we learn from this. First of all, we learn that God is holy and righteous. Okay? God is holy and righteous. You with me, Michael? Because I'm not touching this thing anymore. It's freaking out. I don't know what's going on. Okay? God is holy and righteous. Okay? Okay. What does this mean? I, I'm with you. I feel the same way right now. This is bothering me, too. So, uh, what does this mean? Right? The Bible, from beginning to end, goes to great lengths to teach us the character and nature of God. Okay? If, so we can learn a lot about God and what we would call nature. We call this general level revelation. We're told that anybody can look out and see that there's a God. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, you go to the Grand Canyon, you go to the Tetons, you, you look out at the ocean, or you look into a microscope, you, you know, and you look at the DNA cells or an eyeball, you, you can look and see there is a powerful, amazing creator. However, the Bible gives us what we call special revelation. And the Bible teaches us specifically who God is. And the Bible goes to great lengths over thousands of years, multiple authors, to teach us who God is. And one of the main lessons is that God is holy and he is righteous. Okay? But we're taught throughout the Bible that, number one, God is powerful, all-powerful. He's the creator of the world who spoke existence into being with the very word of his mouth. You don't get any more powerful than that. If you're, if you're you know, if it was one thing if you use your arms and muscles to do something. But if you could speak things into, the, into existence, wouldn't that be nice? Do y'all remember, like, I Dream a Genie? Remember that? Or uh, there, was the, uh, there was another one with uh, a witch, uh, Bewitched, I think was the name of it. And she could just twinkle her nose and stuff happened, right? The house, she needed the house cleaned all of a sudden. You twinkle your nose and it gets clean. Wouldn't that be nice, right? There would be a lot less conflict in our marriage if that would happen, right? If I could just move my nose around a little bit, which I can't even do what she did. But still, uh, but, you know, God is this all-powerful creator. And, and also, not just did he start it, he sustains it with his very being. What exists, exists and continues to exist because of him. Okay? God is also sovereign. He is in control of all things. Nothing comes to pass without God's control and his ordaining power having it. Now, that leaves a lot of questions open. They're not going to try to answer today, right? What about London? Did God control that? Whatever. Yes, ultimately, nothing happens outside of his control. And that's good news 
because somebody has their hand on the steering wheel, so to speak. But, but also, we're taught that God is holy. What does that mean? It means, in, in other words, he's other. He, he's different. He's special. Okay? But also the Bible, when it talks about God as holy, it means that he's righteous. He's perfect. He's untainted. He's unmarred by sin, by, by, by the defilement of wrongdoing and rebellion that's in this world that we're so accustomed to, that God is holy. And, and so there's dramatic things in the Bible that sort of point the picture to this. So, like for example, if you go in the Old Testament, you have God's people, the Israelites, who are in slavery in Egypt, and God takes them out. And the first thing he does is begin to reveal himself to them and show them who he is. And so he, he shows them this, and he takes them to this mountain called Mount Sinai, and, there's, and, he, and, and he starts to display who he is. And it's shown in thunder and lightning and fire and smoke, and all of it's showing God's power. God is a scary God. But more than that, there's, there, they had to block off the, this mountain. And people are told not to approach God. Why? Because you will be struck dead. Why? Because God is holy. And he cannot get near things that are not holy. Things that are defiled. Okay? Um, and then the, the people are told to make a tent. It's called the tabernacle. And this tent and eventually would be the temple, is set up and is supposed to be done in just such a way to emphasize that people are not holy, but God is holy. And it was a place where if things were done right, a defiled, um, rebellious, sinful human being could step close into the presence of God. But there's all these requirements. The, the priests were to wear bells. There was supposed to be smoke and incense and all these different things. And all of that was to protect this defiled human being from a holy, righteous God. And then we see examples of when that goes awry. So, for example, in Leviticus 10, right away, you see Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They go into the temple and they start doing things their own way. And God strikes them dead. Very similar to what we see here in Acts 5. What's going on there? It's, it's, here's a holy, powerful, righteous God. And we can't just barge into that presence defiled. And so they are struck dead. Um, and then there's another story. In 2 Samuel chapter 6. When David is taking the Ark of the Covenant, this holy thing that's created to symbolize God's mercy and grace, but also his holiness and power. And this ark is being taken, and uh, this guy named Uzzah, love the name, Uzzah, Uzzah is there, and they're taking the ark, and it's on a cart, and the ark is supposed to be carried with poles so that nobody would touch it. Well, this ark is on this cart, and it starts to starts to fall, and it's about to fall off into the mud, and Uzzah reaches out to steady it, and he touches it, and he is immediately struck dead. Why? Because he's a defiled, sinner, human being, sinful human being, and it would be better for the ark to land in the dirt and mud than for him to touch it, to show that God is holy, he's righteous, he's perfect, and guess what? We are not. 
And so throughout the Bible, you get this lesson. And, and so you go into the New Testament and you see Jesus. Here's God with dirt on his feet. Here's God showing mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And it's easy, especially in the Christian church, to forget this is the same God. Jesus is the same God that showed himself in fire and smoke on Sinai. Jesus is the same God that struck down Nadab and Abihu. Jesus is the same God who struck down Uzzah. Because Jesus is the holy, righteous God. And here in Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira forgetting this. And, and lying to God. And forgetting the fact that God is righteous and holy. That's it. Okay, so first of all, God is righteous and holy. Secondly, God loves the church. Okay? God passionately loves the church. Pull up the next passage for me, Michael. Okay? We see this in, a, in Ephesians chapter 5. It's actually referring to husbands. But then we're, we get a really clear picture of God's relationship to the church here. It says, husbands, love your wives. Okay? And he gives it a comparison. I want... Husbands, I want you to love your wives in the same way that Christ says here. As Christ loved the church. So we're, as husbands, we're to love our wives equally or in the same manner that Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Okay, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, in other words... Christ loves the church to the extent, to the, to the measure in which he is willing to give his own life for her. And that's what husbands are commanded or challenged to do here. Is that we're not just to love them and give them good things or whatever. We are, should be willing to literally die for our wives. And that is the greatest measure, right? If we are willing to die for our wives, what else are we not willing to do, right? So Christ died, and then that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that keep going, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might, she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus loves the church enough to die for her. Okay, And here's the thing, too, is God loves the imperfect church. You know, I, 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 we feel it. We're a church plant. People come in, they're like, this ain't perfect. <laughs> Pretty obvious, right? And I know there's people who shop around looking for the perfect church. And what we, what I've said throughout time and throughout, I've tell people, listen, you know, if you find the perfect church, get out of there. You are going to mess it up, Right? Uh, there is no perfect church. Why? Because it's filled full of sinners and broken, messed up, messy people. Vintage grace is not perfect. We not, have not set out to create a perfect church. Okay, We're having a new members class today. Let me just start there. Okay, When we have new members class, I'm just going to say at the beginning, you know, we're, we're not going to be the perfect church. We're not going to be everything you need all the time. We can't be that for you. 
Okay? What we're gonna try, this is what we're going to try to do, is point you to Jesus and your need for him, if anything. But God loves his, you know, and, and he loves the church, and, but he's in the process. He's loving the church in spite of her spots and wrinkles and blemishes. And, and his goal is, is that he would present the church ultimately at the end of time without spot, without blemish, in splendor and glory, right? And so, God is holy, and he passionately loves his church and will protect his church at all costs. And so we see here this, earth, this young, fragile, uh, little blossom of a church, the beginning of the all things, and all of a sudden have a challenge to it, not from the outside, and God will protect the church from the outside, but a real danger, a real bad scenario for the church is that cancer would grow from the inside. And so very early on, you see God acting very dramatically, very extremely in this case. Now, I don't think this is the norm, by the way. Okay, I haven't known. I've been in church ministry full time since 2000. I've uh, been a believer since the early 90s. I've, I haven't seen anybody struck dead in the middle of the church service yet. Okay, I mean, you know, uh, and, but, you know, we, there's this thing, okay? Here's the thing, though. God is holy. He loves his church passionately. And, and, and here's the thing. Simple resistance to the gospel is extremely serious, especially in the beginnings of the church. Okay? Um, so I've kind of answered the question, why would God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? He's done this because here's this little beginnings of a church. It's fragile, that, you know, and it could really go awry. And so God, in a very dramatic fashion, displays that he's holy and he really cares about his church. Okay? And then thirdly, that resistance to the gospel is very serious. Okay, and, and, res, and resistance to the gospel can be very subtle and can look like you're doing really good things. Did you hear that? Because on the surface, on the external, outside, Ananias and Sapphira looked like they were doing really good, cool, self-sacrificing things. If you think about it, they sold the property. They gave this away. You know what I mean? That's, here's a height. The height of, I think, spiritual growth is when we start to let go of our stuff. and start to, to, to give. And, to, and the height of love is when we start sacrificing ourselves and giving to another, right? That is, you know, that is the height of love, that we would give ourselves away. And we see, I mean, you, and it looks like on the outside, that's what Ananias and Fire are doing. But more to the story. But, so, what about Ananias and Sapphira's sin? What caused this extreme, drastic reaction from God? So, I want to look at their specific sin here, and maybe we can learn a little bit from this. Okay, um, what was it about their particular sin that would have caused this? Okay. Okay, let me start with this, okay? First of all, it's not about the money, okay? Uh, 
I mean, uh, Peter said this. He said, it was your property. You owned it. You didn't have to do any of this. Okay? It's not about the money. You know, it's, this is not a lesson. Okay, I'm not, I could use this, I guess, if I was pretty messed up. And use this to show you guys, y'all need to give all your money. You need to not hold back any. You need to give to the church all your money, right? I mean, we could go there, maybe, but it's not about the money, okay? Secondly, it's, it's, um, it's not just about the lying either. Now, it's a bad thing to lie to God, okay? Um, but it's really not about the lying part of it, okay? So here's the thing. God doesn't, and here, also, God doesn't strike everybody down dead that sin in the church. I know people think that sometimes, you know, like, Somebody will say a cuss word in the church on accident. Like, oh, no, God's going to strike me down. You know, they're like worried about it or whatever. And I, I've, give, I've had weddings with people that aren't believers or whatever. And they're like, you know, they're really nervous in the church building. Like God doesn't exist outside of the building. And they're like, you know, they're like paranoid in the church building because they're, you know, that's hilarious to me. You know, I'm like, watch out. You know, that's, you know, see that brown spot? That's where that one last guy. Um, you know, there's like this paranoia thing about in the building. But God doesn't strike dead everybody who sins. As a matter of fact, let me point out something here. Ananias and Sapphira might have been believers. Some think that Ananias and Sapphira could have been actual believers. God strike down his own people. Now, death isn't the worst thing, is the thing, right? This striking down of Ananias and Sapphira might have been an act of grace to keep them from perpetuating sin and rebellion and this what was going on from going on, right? That's possible. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Jesus talks about that, okay? okay so what's going on here? What's happening, okay? I believe that what you see with Ananias and Sapphira is ultimately at the heart an example of resistance to the gospel and how serious that can be within the church and in our own lives. Okay? What do I mean by this? Okay? All right? And especially in a fragile young church. And I'll mention this in a little bit, but we've experienced some of it. Nobody's been struck down dead, but God has winnowed people out from us. We've seen people removed, pulled away, asked to leave, whatever, uh, because of these kind of things, okay? And, and, and here's the thing is, I, I need y'all to, start, we, I want to really try to examine this and look at the subtlety of it. Because Ananias Sapphire didn't do anything super drastic here. You know, they didn't kill anybody. They didn't, you know, there's nothing real extreme here. This isn't your typical big drama church sin kind of thing. You know, there was no affairs going on. There was no, you know, no children were being, you know, uh, abused. Nothing like that, which you would normally think of in terms of a big sin in the church. Okay, here's the thing. The real problem for Ananias and Fire wasn't that they messed up or they lied. Okay, here's the thing. I believe when they were confronted about it, their response is what's a clue here, okay? Here's the thing, okay? When Ananias and Sapphira, they're confronted. I think, in the text, especially with Sapphira, you really get this. It's a little harder to see with Ananias. It says he fell over dead, 
But I think they were confronted and they maintained and they stayed in the lie. They had a chance. You follow what I'm saying? So Peter confronts them. We're going to sin. You hear what I'm saying? We are going to sin in our lives. And here's the question. What is our response? What is our reaction when we sin and when we're particularly when we're confronted with it? This is where I believe real resistance to the gospel begins to show. And, you know, we can talk good about Jesus' love and his grace. All that's fine and dandy until our sin is exposed, especially in front of other people. Okay, so Ananias and Sapphira, they're confronted. Peter confronts them. And instead of owning up to their sin, instead of repenting, they, they continued on maintaining what, was, what they were doing. All right? Simply put, here it is. Catch this. Simply put, Ananias and Sapphira refused to go to the cross and receive forgiveness and receive and, and accept and own the righteousness that's already been given to them and, and, and owning their guilt and need of the cross. Okay? Uh, instead, they held on to their own self-righteousness, their own false righteousness, which was and then born out in deceit. You see this? In other words, when they were confronted, instead of saying, you're right, Peter, we sin, we need Jesus, we need the cross, forgive us. That's, that's accepting the cross, right? And, and instead, they said, no. Yeah, we're good. And so what they showed is a resistance to the core of the gospel. It's not the lying. It's not the money. It's the fact that they were going to no longer continue on in the gospel. They were going to stand in their own righteousness. They were going to stand in their lie. That is what's serious. It's very subtle. It looks really good. People do it all the time. I I can confess, I do this sometimes. I refuse to just own up and be in the gospel. Instead, I I get defensive. I lie. I I smoke in mirrors, all kinds of stuff. Okay? Now, there's an example of what this looks like. We see it in the life, in the ministry of Jesus. We see um, Jesus, right in the middle of his ministry, and we see this in uh, Matthew 16, uh, Mark, I think Mark 8, and other places. You see Jesus is there, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, you know, they say all kinds of things. And Peter stands up. Peter. This is Peter. Um, not, not this verse, dude. Um, uh, Peter stands up and says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And he gets like the, the star for his Sunday school answer. And then Jesus turns around. And starts talking about how he needs to go to the cross to die that he might be lifted up. Okay? And Peter tells us that Peter does not like the idea of Jesus going to the cross. He would rather it be his way. He would rather it be his method, which was, let's take this by force. Let's do this my way. And it says that he rebukes Jesus. So he stands in front of Jesus and says, no way. You 
can't go to the cross. And what is, what is Jesus' response? Jesus doesn't say, oh, poor little Peter, you'll get it one day. No, you know what he says? Get behind me, Satan. Why would he say that? Okay, uh, one of my favorite authors, preachers, a guy named Tim Keller, he summed this up very clearly. Put the quote up here. He said this, resistance to the cross, resistance to the cross or the gospel in any way, even in the slightest, most subtle ways, is to be in league with the enemy. Did you hear that? Resistance to the cross is to be in league with the enemy. And so, here we see Ananias, Sapphira, okay? They were ultimately resistant to the cross. And instead, they treasured their reputations more than Jesus. They treasured their possessions more than Jesus. And ultimately refused to just take the cross own up to their sin, ask for forgiveness, receive the righteousness that he gives to us, not that we earn, but that he's earned for us, and said, we're sorry. That's the cross. The way of the cross is a way of suffering. And so Jesus, in, in that same, those same passage right in the middle of his ministry, gives us an idea of what it looks like to follow him. He says this, um, Matthew, uh, Mark 8, you can pull it up now. It says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Okay, so he's saying the way of the cross is a way of letting go. Owning your junk. Losing your life, taking up cross and following him okay the way of the christian is the way of the cross it's it's not the easy way it's not it's not the way that looks good it's not the it's the way that owns our mess it's the way that that receives his mercy and grace when we resist it though it becomes very destructive it becomes very damaging to the church, especially a church in its infancy. Okay? Now, um, I'm going to stop there. You can just leave it there. So here's a question for you. Are you resistant to the gospel? Now, I, I would hope you would honestly say, yes, I can be resistant to the gospel. There's times when I don't want the gospel. There's times when I want to be right. There's times I want, it to, I want to be like Ananias and Sapphira and not own up to my junk, you know? And, you know, God hasn't struck me dead yet, thankfully. You know, and here, we, here it was in the early aspects of the church signaling to them, hey, this is big deal. This is serious. Let me tell you, as a church planner and the start of this church, there's been things, there's been sin and resistance to the gospel that we overlooked. And some of it was... And for good reason, for the sake of grace and for the sake of uh, loving people or whatever. And that that unchecked sin, that unchecked resistance to the gospel began to do horrible damage 
and families within our church, with people we were trying to reach in our neighborhoods and so on with the gospel. And, and we were trying to be graceful and loving. And what we should have done is cut it off. We should have cut the cancer out early. You know, and that sound. I mean, I'm not that type of person. I'm a Mr. Grace. Like, I want everybody to like me. I want to like everybody, all that kind of thing. And, and, and there's a point in which in the church where church discipline needs to step up and make hard calls. You know, if, if you have cancer in your body, you go to work. And the surgeon gets the knives out and starts cutting. And they use, now they're using lasers and photon whatever stuff now to, to, to do serious damage to what is, is, is a cancer. And so as a, as in our own personal lives, we can ask the question, where am I resistant to the gospel? You know, where am I not taking up my cross? Where am I not l- letting go? Where am I trying to own my own righteousness? Where am I not receiving forgiveness? Where am I not repenting and confessing my mess and junk? And as a church, you know, what does it look like for us to be aware of the subtleties of resistance? And it can look like good stuff. It can look like people are serving and they're giving. And sometimes if those people are the ones you got to wor- worry about. <laughs> I don't, no offense to some of y'all serving and giving and, and whatever. But sometimes that's where it shows itself. And the enemy would love to have a bunch of great looking people look like they're serving and sacrificing. Yet under the surface, they're very resistant to the, the truths and realities of the gospel. So what we need to do. Is I mean, look at this and, and like the response of people. They were afraid. Wouldn't you be? Like, if God struck one of us down right now, I would be afraid. I would be thinking, oh, that's right. God is, God is holy. And he cares about his church. So I'm, I'm going to be careful and not mess around with his church. I'm going to pray for his church. I'm going to pray for the people in the church. I'm going to be... Seeking, you know, that, that, that God's church is pure and holy and that it's moving in a great place because don't mess with God's stuff, right? Like the church, let's put it this way, the church is God's baby. And you don't mess with, with God's baby kind of thing. Um, it's a serious thing. And, but then let's look internally and say, where? I mean, like, in what areas of my heart am I resistant? And it, where... Where am I doing good things for my own sake and trying to make myself look good or for my own benefit and so on? And we need to pray and ask God for wisdom and, and guidance there. Um, 